you can essentially make a virtual human on chips, on multiple chips in our case, to to essentially create kind of a, a you know an avatar of the human body that you can, uh, a bit like a black box, administer a compound and, and see what happens. The Tomorrow Scale podcast is a series of conversations with the scientists and entrepreneurs who are building the future. We explore cutting-edge technologies with huge potential and go deep to understand how these founders and inventors must chart entirely new territory to bring their technology to market. We have discussions on a wide range of scientific frontiers, from life sciences to AI, nanotech and materials, to the very food we eat. And we'll talk about impacts, time horizons, and what's coming next. We'll learn, quite literally, how science fiction becomes reality. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. Now, this is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Briggs. I work at drug development at Tetherex, and I'm a venture partner at Deep Science Ventures. I'm so excited because our guest today is Dr. Daniel Levner. He's the co-founder and chief technology officer at Emulate. They're a company commercializing a technology that has redesigned human biology into small plastic microfluidic chips. Thank you, Dr. Levner. Thanks for coming. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start off with your path, which I think is just really fascinating. Can you tell us how you went from the West Coast doing aerospace engineering at Stanford to the East Coast doing biological engineering at the WIES at Harvard? That's a that's a great question. Uh, so actually, I, I got my PhD in a field of electrical engineering called optoelectronics, uh, which is all about lasers, uh, optics, and telecommunication. And uh, I started a company in that space. And unfortunately, that industry really suffered in uh, 2001 and years after, as the, the you know famous Silicon Valley crash. And, uh, you know, I joke that many people during that era pointed their lasers at biological things. Many engineers and uh, uh, quantitative scientists uh, realized that uh, uh, the biological sciences actually need people who can do math and, and mathematical modeling. Uh, and like many of them, I was interested in that space as well. But what I did differently is that I didn't just want to look at those problems that the engineers thought were important, uh, but actually to understand what it is that biologists truly care about. So so to do that, I ended up joining a lab at uh, Harvard Medical School as a, as a postdoc. And in that lab, I basically pretend to be a biologist. I worked alongside a biologist doing cell culture and various techniques, uh, again, to really understand what it is that makes the biologist uh, tick. I did that for about a year to a year and a half to get my, uh, my bearings in biology. And then I decided that it was time to integrate what I've learned about biology and, uh, and my background in engineering. At which point I uh, joined the lab of a famous geneticist at Harvard, uh, Dr. George Church, uh, who uh, you know welcomed me into his lab, and it was a, it was a tremendous experience, and and really allowed me again to integrate uh, biology and engineering. Uh, but George also happened to be one of the first uh, faculty members of one of the founding faculty members of the the Wyss Institute at Harvard, and through him I suddenly found myself as as part of that Wyss Institute, and, and that was that was great. That was uh, a great bit of happenstance for me. The Wyss Institute was actually a perfect fit for my background and my uh, uh, my interest uh, because the Wyss uh, intentionally positioned itself to be at a juncture of different uh, disciplines and uh, different parts of the spectrum between innovation and, and commercialization. And uh, it's exactly where I wanted to be in the sense that, for example, 
uh, it's called, the full name is the Wiese Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard University. So the idea of biologically inspired and engineering uh, were, uh, you know, exactly what it is that I wanted to do with my engineering uh, background. And one of the sort of marvels of the Wiese is that uh, it creates a great sense of uh, camaraderie and collaboration between different kinds of scientists, uh, scientists who probably wouldn't really interact in a regular academic department. And uh, even though I was working with George on various uh, gene synthesis and sequencing technologies, uh, I uh, sort of ran into uh, other other researchers there, and in particular, ended up meeting uh, Dr. Don Engber, the the founding director of the institute, and uh, he ended up pulling me into this project that, uh, to be honest, I knew very little about at that time when I got pulled into it. Uh, but this is the project that later became uh, Emulate, so it was very sort of uh, fortuitous, uh, you know, right place and right time uh, story for me. You know, at first, uh, they, you know, the project was a, a good fit because I had background in uh, optics and automation and, and automation and biology. And as, as I think we'll talk about later, uh, one of the uh, sort of innovations that we did along this uh, organ chip technology isn't just creating the underlying technology, uh, but also in creating the right tools and infrastructure so that it's useful, so that you don't need to have a PhD uh, in engineering in order to run this technology, but it's it's actually much more accessible uh, to people. So that was my foray into this technology was on the engineering front. But then uh, I got much more integrated throughout the, the project until I got you know very involved with the biological aspects of it as well. And and really at this point, that's uh, that's very much where my heart is. Before we dive into the technology, I wanted to get a little bit more color on on kind of the the initial um, meeting between you and Dr. Ingber, and a little bit about kind of how the the, the project kind of comes together. And you know, the Wies, you talked a little bit about how it's how it's special. I mean, there's there's the, the Whitehead Institute, there's the Broad, just just at Harvard MIT. What makes the the Wies different from even those you know institutes that are associated with these um, fantastic universities of higher learning? Uh, what makes the Wies different? Yeah, you know, the Wies is, uh, is a story that's very close to my heart, uh, in, in part because it was uh, so sort of um, uh, uh, central to my uh, professional development, but, but also because it's, uh, it's a topic that I'm very passionate about, which is uh, innovation and, and the, the bridge between innovation and commercialization. Um, between uh, Don Ingber and uh, benefactor uh, Hans-Jörg Wies, a Swiss billionaire, uh, they uh, really bonded around the idea that universities are great with the innovation. That's where a lot of great ideas uh, come from, but typically universities don't uh, have the means to take a project all the way to to, to its true impact, uh, which, which is commercial. And on the other hand, uh, commercial entities, large companies, uh, often struggle to be as creative as smaller organizations or universities. So uh, the two try to, to figure out a new model uh, to bridge that gap. 
And uh, I, I think they came up with a, a very great uh, uh, model, which is what they do is they take uh, sort of a three-legged stool. They take the uh, scientists, the innovators, they connect them with what they call the advanced technology team, which are scientists have already done it. You know, people have been in industry, in pharma, uh, medical device companies, and so on. Uh, and then the third leg of a stool is business development individuals, the ones who can bring in the investors and the business vision uh, to the technology. And by doing that, uh, the Beast Institute has been able to, to to bridge that gap quite successfully between that innovation and uh, and commercialization. Uh, Emulate is one of the biggest companies to be the product of that, but it's not uh, not the only company uh, that's that's a product. And uh, you know, again, it's it's through this unique structure that I got connected with uh, Dr. Ingber uh, originally around you know he knew, for example, that I'd built. Uh, equipment for a diagnostic project that uh, had some similarities to what we're interested in for this organ and chip uh, project. And he asked me to get involved and uh, sort of the rest was history. In spinning this out from the Wies, you're sitting there with um, these different groups and you're faced with uh, spinning out and commercializing this technology. So one of the first questions that everyone has to answer is what is this organ on a chip technology and how does it work? The uh, motivation for organ chips was the fact that uh, most drugs, the vast, vast majority of drugs, fail in clinical trials. So on average, around 90% of drugs fail in clinical trials. In oncology, the number is said to be as high as 97%, which if you think about it, is, is pretty abysmal. I mean, 3% success rate after tens or hundreds of millions of dollars uh, worth of investment. Uh, and it's not for lack of trying. You know, we do our best to try to figure out uh, whether drugs are going to be safe uh, for people or efficacious in people. Uh, but the best we have to go on is usually animal models. And we get the wrong answer from animal models because animal biology is just sufficiently different uh, from human biology. And that problem is even getting worse as we're shifting more towards biologics because those biologics tend to be even more specific to uh, the human biology. So uh, animals are, again, one one means by which we try to assess uh, safety and efficacy. Uh, the other means is by taking human cells and putting them uh, in vitro in various systems like you know, petri dishes or trans wells. Uh, but those also don't give you the right environment or the right uh, answer. And that, that was basically the, the starting point for our explanation, uh, exploration. We asked ourselves, why is it that we could take perfectly good human cells and uh, take them out of the body to stop acting uh, correctly, predictably of the body? And what we learned is that this is because cells are supremely sensitive to their environment, what's known as a cellular microenvironment. And when you take a cell and put it in a petri dish, uh, it's sensing rigid plastic, stagnant fluid, isolation from other cell types, and so on. Very different environment than that cell had experienced within the body. And with that different environment, it essentially starts executing a different program. Uh, so it starts behaving differently than it does in the body, and, and then you get the wrong uh, predictive results in terms of safety and efficacy. So it's with that understanding that cells are so sensitive to their environment that we could use engineering methods to uh, to create the right environment for the cells, essentially giving them a home away from home, essentially making them feel, if you will, as though they're still within the human body. And that's exactly what organ chips are. Organ chips are these plastic constructs. They're uh, about the size of a AA battery. Uh, 
but within them, they're really engineered to recreate elements of that cellular microenvironment that the cells ought to be feeling within the body. And it's not just one thing. It's actually a combination of different factors. So it's a, things like the protein and chemical environment. Each one of our organs has a unique signature in terms of the proteins that line it. We try to recreate that uh, signature. Um, uh, always we have multiple interacting cell type cells. They're never in isolation. They're always in each other. So we try to reproduce that communication by putting multiple cell types uh, within chip. Uh, mechanical forces, you know, our, our lung is under breathing motion, our intestines undergoes uh, peristalsis. Uh, it turns out that these are very important uh, factors. These uh, cues, mechanical cues, actually lead to different uh, phenotypes uh, in the cells. And then flow, a uh, super important one we're finding. Uh, so of course, in the body, you have uh, blood flow, and the blood not only provides nutrients and removes waste products, it actually also modulates uh, outcome impairment uh, signaling. So uh, super important in terms of recreating the cellular microenvironment. And with organ chip technology, what we've done is that we've essentially built over time a toolbox to control these different uh, microenvironmental factors and more, more that I haven't listed. And when we do a good job with recreating the environment for the cells, we really do find that they become much, much more predictive of the human body, both in terms of predicting safety and in terms of efficacy of drugs. I want to dig in more on, on the aspect because you, you, you keep using the word engineer, and this feels so much more um, holistic because you're not trying to recapitulate a uh, smaller version of a heart. This is product design. And insofar as, you know, em emulate chips have been deemed high art, they're even on display at MoMA. I mean, they're almost unnecessarily elegant. They're clean. They are, they're, they're, they're beautiful. How did, how did design factor in, um, to the creation of these chips? Yeah. Thank you. First of all, um, uh, look, we were fortunate early on, uh, you know, maybe this is another place where the Beast Institute helped. Our, our network of, of individuals who contributed to this project through through the years is that we uh, had our eyes open uh, not only to the fact that the project is unique in its combination of engineering and biology, uh, but also the importance of design uh, to this. And when I say design, it's of course not just the, the visual aspects of design, but that was important to us uh, as well because uh, the visuals demarcate that this is a different kind of technology, a new kind of uh, technology, uh, but also aspects of design in terms of purposefulness uh, in terms of, you know, understanding clearly at the outset what it's meant to accomplish and what it's not meant to accomplish and so on. So it's really uh, integral to our values, this, again, three-legged stool of engineering, biology, uh, and design. Uh, you know, as far as the engineering versus biology, that was another super important learning for us uh, in the beginning. Uh, we, we learned this a bit by trial and error. When we started, we, we tried a more traditional approach where we had a, a biology group, we had an engineering group, and uh, each would run along, you know, on their own project, and they would interface regularly, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, weekly, biweekly, monthly, and whatnot. And we regularly found that actually not to work too well because uh, the two would, would end up somewhat diverging. 
And instead, what we ended up doing is to create these uh, small project teams where the project teams uh, had to, they were required to contain both the biologists and the engineers uh, so that they were sort of, you know, locked in the same room. They'd have to figure out how to talk uh, each other's language. They develop respect uh, for each other. And it's through that very deep uh, and continuous interaction that they would sort of crack the code on how to integrate the engineering biology together. So it becomes this balance because you talked about the the kind of the, the tension and movement. You know, you have to create these kind of biologically flexible system, but you also have to make something that's reproducible and durable. How do you balance that? Right. So, so look, there's always in engineering, there's always uh, compromises, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, often what we find, for example, is uh, the biologists, new biologists who joined a project will sort of list off all of the cell types and all of the factors and all of the components that they think should uh, be there for a particular organ type. And of course, if you try to put all of those in right away, maybe you can do it eventually, but if you try to do them uh, all right away, uh, it's a mess. You, you lose the control, you lose the design, uh, you don't know what the contribution of each factors are. So the engineers, on the other hand, like to start at the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, very uh, reductionist. You know, we need this cell type and this cell type and this condition and that condition. And it's only through the communication between those two types of scientists that, uh, that you know, we really find the right uh, kind of you know, balance that operating uh, point where uh, you have the right level of complexity that's weighed against uh, the the practicality of this. And like you said, the robustness and repeatability. Can you give an example of where it was just better to just leave the biology behind rather than try to recapitulate it? Well, so we don't usually leave it uh, behind uh, ultimately, but we do build up to it. So one example I can give you is with our liver chip. Uh, liver chip uh, um, is meant to uh, recapitulate the human liver uh, for various applications, including uh, uh, toxicology, texting drugs for to see if they can cause uh, drug-induced liver injury, uh, also for some disease modeling, and so on. And what we found is uh, hepatocytes are a particularly difficult uh, cell type to work with because they don't proliferate. And uh, we found it, for example, easiest to start with a model that just had two different cell types, the hepatocytes and the liver sinusoidal endothelial cells, the uh, uh, the cells that line the blood vessels within the liver. Uh, it's only once we contr- got our control or our arms around that two-cell type model that we can go back and then add a third and a fourth cell types, which are Kupfer cells, the resident immune cells of the liver, and stellate cells, which are the fibroblasts uh, of the liver. So we don't typically leave something behind um, sort of ultimately, uh, but we do sometimes take uh, stepping stones uh, to, towards there. And then kind of what's the limitations? Where are the uh, things where it's better to have not things at the monolayer level, but more at the tissue level and then the organoid level? When's it better to graduate to an animal or an organoid? And when's it better to stay at the chip level? And how is that changing over time? Yeah, look, so the, the choice of model system depends on the kind of questions that uh, that you're asking every sure. model is going to have some uh, some limitation no model is going to be uh, complete and, and they all have their own trade-offs uh, you know for example uh, you, you know straight tissue culture is going to provide you a lot more uh, throughput than an organ ship model or an animal model 
uh, would. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, what we see uh, in that progression is, you know, when people are done with, with simple uh, uh, tissue culture models, uh, usually these days they may go to an organoid model. Uh, organoids are a great technology in that they retain the phenotype, the individual that they're from. They have a diversity of different cell types. Um, so a lot of great experiments can be done on organoids, but organoids are also very limited in terms of uh, being an experimental platform. Uh, for example, in the intestine, uh, intestinal organoids, you don't have access to the inside of the organoid versus the outside of the organoid. Uh, so you can't really look at much of the biology that has to do with the luminal versus basolateral side of the intestine or vascular side uh, of the intestine, uh, which is which is a lot of what the intestine does, right? So if you look at intestinal absorption or you look at uh, permeability as a measure of toxicity or you want to look at microbiome or you want to look at um, you know, different inflammatory uh, markers or inflammatory cues that might have to go in one way or the other. Uh, organoids don't allow you to do that again, or not with any ease because they're balls of cells that don't provide you access uh, to the lumen. So one of the things that we've done is actually um, taken organoid technology and integrated it into organ chip technology. Uh, our models of the intestine, for example, right now we have one of the colon and one of the duodenum, uh, actually leverage organoids technology as a cell source, but then provide it with that experimental platform that allows you to do the things that I mentioned. Hmm. We do provide access to the lumen. We can look at absorption and uh, permeability. Uh, we can uh, add microbiome and immune components and, and so on. And uh, so, so first it was sort of, let's combine the best of both worlds, but then actually we found that there is a, a synergy between the two. Uh, and we find this in other examples as well, in, in IPS technologies as well. We find that the, uh, the environment that our chips are able to provide the cells has that uh, ability to actually drive them further in terms of maturation and differentiation. So we find, we have a paper on this, uh, that when we look at RNA expression of organoids on their own, or those organoid cells placed and cultured within an organ chip, uh, they actually look more in vivo-like um, with, within the organ chip. Uh, so, uh, so, so, yeah, so there is um, a kind of a continuum of, of a complexity of models. And then you don't have to stop, you know, uh, organ chips, you know, you can start, for example, with the intestine with simply an epithelial layer and a uh, endothelial layer. We, we always vascularize our, our organ chips. We always have... Uh, uh, you know, the cells that line the, the blood vessels, because we actually find those to have a important, significant ex- uh, effect on the organ level uh, biology. So usually that's our, our simplest version, the two cell types. Uh, but then you can add other, other components. So for example, we've taken uh, circulating immune cells in, in one example, uh, and we can watch the recruitment of circulating immune cells into the intestine in response to uh, different inflammatory cues or whatnot, actually also as a model for immune oncology for therapies like uh, CAR T-cells or uh, T-cell bispecific uh, antibodies and whatnot. So that's one uh, way that you can increase the complexity of that model. Another one that we're working on is to incorporate resident immune cells and so on. And it can give you examples of this sort from our other organ models as well. When I saw a video of the leukocyte extravasating um, through in the lung chip, I was like, gosh, I wish we had had those five years ago when we were doing all our preclinical models. That was very, very, that was a kind of an aha moment for me with, with these um, chips, I'm sure it was for, for many people. And, and you know, that's, that's very much to, uh, uh, to Don, Dr. Don Eckberg's credit and 
uh, uh, Dan Ha, the postdoc who was working with it at the time, who uh, was now professor at UPenn, is that what they were able to do with that original long chip uh, publication is not just to show fancy engineering work, but to actually show how it impacts biological science, right? That, that uh, uh, impression that you just described is, is something that we hear across the board where people saw this and weren't, you know, they didn't just say this is cool engineering. They looked at it and said, oh, wow, this could really impact the kind of biological questions that I was asking. And this, you know, I feel is, is really what opened up this new space of organs and chips. Who is Zoe and how does she factor into all this? <laughs> uh, so, so Zoe is the name Zoe, that we call our, uh, our culture module. It's our main instrument that is essentially the life support system for our uh, organ chips. Uh, Zoe is Greek for life. Uh, so we thought that was an appropriate name for uh, the life support uh, system. Uh, and also uh, we wanted to, to pick a human name, uh, a personified uh, name. Because this technology is all about, you know, being human is all about impacting humans, um, uh, ultimately, and, you know, emulating the human body and so on. So uh, a human name, meaning life seemed like a good choice for our life support instrument. Absolutely. So Emulate started from a large effort between the Weiss um, and DARPA. And there was a large slate of, I guess, almost a dozen, 10 or 12 uh, different organs that were uh, targeted. Some of those became uh, emulate. The, if the vision is this kind of human on a chip, that implies this network of these interconnected chips. So how is emulate working towards that? Uh, and I know you've got some kind of demonstration data. How are you working towards that for my lab, so to speak? So that DARPA program was was a very important stepping stone in the history of uh, of Emulate. Um, DARPA had a vision, uh, which is very much in line with with Emulate's vision, that uh, there are many important questions where we need a better understanding of how X will affect uh, the human body, which whatever X may be. And um, they uh, had this idea that. Uh, organ chips individually are important for this uh, purpose because they can answer organ level uh, questions, uh, but also that if you link all these different organs to each other, you can essentially make a virtual human on chips, so multiple chips in our case, um, to to essentially create kind of a, a you know an avatar of the human body that you can uh, a bit like a black box administer a compound and, and see what happens uh, within the body. So that was a, a huge uh, you know hugely synergistic with our interests uh, because it allowed us to create the uh, individual organ models. Uh, it also allowed us to create uh, the instrumentation, that, that uh, uh, platform that I mentioned that uh, allows, um, you know, the, the technology doesn't just need to exist, it needs to be useful and robust. So the instrumentation uh, uh, allows that, it creates an interface for people, for scientists to much more easily use these chips. And then lastly, uh, the DARPA project involved this linking uh, of organ chips. And uh, we, we were able to develop that technology. Actually, we have some uh, really interesting intellectual property around linking uh, organ chips. Uh, so we have it in our back pocket. Uh, the reason I say back pocket is it's not because it's uh, uninteresting. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, but when you link uh, different organs to each other, you want to know that the individual parts that you're linking are worthwhile. Right. Because if you take a, a bunch of uncharacterized pieces, you know, it's a it's a bit garbage in, garbage out. You don't really know if what you get as a sum result is, is meaningful if you don't know what the piece parts are are good. Uh, so as a company, we're really focused right now on 
uh, commercializing the uh, the individual organ models. And when I say commercializing, that, that means you know developing them with all of the the data that illustrates that they're doing what they're uh, supposed to be doing in, in a robust and repeatable. Uh, matter. And then at some point down the road, we'll probably revisit uh, the organ linking. But for the time being, it seems like scientists have plenty of questions that involve individual organ models um, that, you know, will keep all of us busy for the next while. With that, you've up to 100 people now. Where do you hope to get with your, I think, Series E round, uh, 82 million from North Pond and others? I think that brings your total to about 225. Um, Where does Series E take you? So the, the main focus for us in Series E is expanding our model uh, menu. Uh, so we currently have five different uh, organ models uh, on the market. So we have a liver, intestine, brain, kidney, and lung. Uh, but for each one of those, we actually uh, develop particular applications as well. So for example, the brain uh, can be used for studying neuroinflammation, or actually the same brain chip could be used to study the transport of drugs into uh, into the brain. So those are examples of two applications that are in different stages of development for our brain uh, chip. So we are planning to introduce 14 different applications uh, over the next uh, couple of years, uh, and uh, that's that's really the bulk of where that funding is uh, is meant to go. Uh, we think that the more we in, we provide in terms of the menu, uh, the more sort of a turnkey solution pharma has to to answer various questions that they have along the drug development pipeline. More so than many other companies, you're going to have a pretty hefty multifactorial R&D program like you just talked about, as well as a multifactorial manufacturing program, as well as a multifactorial sales program. How do you think about department and build as, as a high-growth startup? Yeah, so so that's a great question. Uh, so uh, what we try to do is uh, a couple of things. Uh, one is that we try to still leverage that uh, philosophy that I mentioned earlier on, where you really have to bring the engineers and biologists together because that that you know tight tight knitting is the key to uh, to developing these kinds of, of models. Uh, what we have done is to divide out uh, what we call the the platform, which is the instrumentations and the underlying chips, which uh, service uh, a, a large number of models and, and applications uh, from the individual uh, model development. The platform essentially serves the development of these uh, individual uh, applications. So that's one organizational divide that you would see within Emulate. But but again, uh, the, the departmental walls are very uh, flexible because we want to encourage the interaction between the, the engineers and uh, biologists and, and the platform developers and the application developers uh, and so on. In terms of sales, there's actually very often uh, synergies because when you talk to one pharma user, you know either that user, him or herself, will have additional interests in terms of other applications or, or organ models, uh, or else there's others within the same company that, that do. So in terms of sales, there's actually synergy for having uh, a menu of, of, uh, of different products. And so when you've got kind of these traditional biotechs and stuff as as customers, um, as you build your company, which of the things do you want to kind of emulate, sorry to borrow that term, but um, of your customers and which are the things that you kind of want to eschew and be do things differently with emulate? Yeah, look, so, so we do, um, you know, 
for, for one, we, we're definitely a platform company in a sense that, uh, you know, it's not a one-trick pony, right? We have the different organs. We have uh, um, the different applications for those organs and some of the additional technologies we mentioned uh, through our conversation. And that, that definitely... Um, uh, you know, cr- creates a certain organizational structure that might not be uh, typical. Uh, the other thing is that there is a you know great deal of education that that we have to take on, uh, whether it's uh, education in terms of uh, showing our users. I mean, one of the things we talk a lot about is the fact that uh, we actually work alongside uh, animal models. Our our users are are thinking in terms of. Uh, one chip equals one mouse uh, type thinking. Or uh, when we look at biologics, one chip is one monkey uh, in terms of how you design uh, experiments. So uh, that's, uh, you know, where where to place chips in terms of your thinking, in terms of how you design experiments and so on, is not something that people are generally familiar with. So that's something that we need to, to educate. Um, the other thing is that uh, we also have a very robust uh, uh, field science team, which actually works alongside our customers to to help them because again this is this is new this is a new technology that's what we set out to uh, to develop but because it's new it's less familiar and we want to make sure that uh, our users are able to develop the confidence uh, to um, you know to successfully use the the technology so uh, we invest in that uh, uh, quite quite a lot so those might be two examples of where uh, we really um, you know embrace the fact organizationally the fact that we're developing something new it's a very platform and very i to use the word revolutionary it takes that education beyond the education of your customers and getting that confidence in this type of new data you've got to educate the regulators as well and, and propose this year in april the fda wants to modernize through their fda modernization act hr 2565 um, that will allow not just organic chip data but a lot of the uh, other things organoids and things like that to be accepted by the fda how does emulate think about the fda modernization act and how do you plan to use this most effectively um, to convince your your customers? Look, the, the FDA has been very receptive uh, to our kinds of uh, technologies, to this whole space. Uh, in fact, uh, some some people in the FDA would would probably tell you that uh, the first grant that uh, the the Don received uh, back at Harvard was actually from the FDA to to develop what they call the long heart machine. Um, so very very early on, uh, the FDA took note of these emerging technologies. And realize their potential impact on uh, regulatory science, and that uh, relationship has continued over the years. We actually had two different uh, collaborative research and development agreements uh, with the FDA. Uh, the second one between Emulate and the FDA was signed uh, last year. Uh, it divides actually into four parts. You know, for example, we're looking at the, our lung chip actually to study COVID, uh, our brain chip for modeling Alzheimer's, our intestine chip for microbiome studies, and our liver chip for drug-induced liver injury and so on. Uh, so this is work that's ongoing within FDA labs. So the FDA is very committed for, to exploring uh, these kinds of, of technologies. And of course, the FDA Modernization Act and the Humane Research Act are uh, now, you know, kind of on the legislative side, um, 
you know, looking to support these uh, these kinds of efforts uh, within the FDA and elsewhere. Um, so, so you know, again, uh, the FDA has actually been very receptive to these sort of technologies because, uh, I guess, to, to my understanding, it's because they understand the underlying problem, right? With that uh, failure rate in clinical trials being as high as as it is, ninety percent uh, and up. Um, you know, it's it's a major problem that really needs an attention of, of both industry and regulators. So if we fast forward, what happens to the world of drug development in a world full of uh, lots of different sources of alternative data, like organon chips, organoids? Um, the FDA will have to deal with a, um, a flood of new data and new data types that are, you know, they have less information about uh, how do you manage that moving forward? Look, as far as, uh, you know, handling the, the change, of course, we and others will, will be there to work alongside uh, the FDA to to help, you know, make sense and help put everything in the right uh, place. But if you want to fast forward, you know, there's a few things that uh, that we hope to see happen. Uh, for one, uh, you know, of course, I keep talking about the, the, the failure rate. Uh, we really want to see a dramatic the reduction in the uh, in the failure rates, whether it's for uh, safety problems or for lack of uh, uh, of efficacy. Um, another thing too is that there's some uh, indications that people aren't pursuing at all because they don't have the right uh, models to do that against. There's a bit of a chicken and the egg. Great point. Um, so yeah. hopefully by providing the uh, you know a new wave of biological models we can enable the development of drugs where there is simply no practical way to develop them uh, earlier and then not not to sort of leave this off the table there's the reduction uh, on the use of animal models which uh, you know we, we understand right now that it is you know the use of an research animals is unavoidable in drug development, but uh, these models could impact, um, you know, substantially and reduce uh, the usage of these uh, uh, of these animals. Um, we see this with, with smaller uh, animals by, you know, using more focused animal research because a lot of the upfront research could be done on organ chips, uh, but also uh, not human primates. That, that's an area where uh, you know, as you know, many drugs today, uh, biologics and other uh, drug families are becoming very human specific, which is great because they're they're that much more focused against the uh, the human pathology. Uh, but it also means that it rules out a lot of simpler uh, animal models for their development, leaving researchers to rely on non-human uh, primates, and those are you know expensive for one. Uh, the research is really slow too. And and three is that nobody really wants to do this research in monkeys if they can if they can avoid it. Um, and uh, organ chip technology can there too um, potentially reduce the reliance on, on non-human primates. In terms of regulatory being one of your major challenges, one of the other major challenges is going to be manufacturing at scale uh, and pricing. How is Emulate managing the economies of scale? Um, so, in terms of the engineering of our systems, you'll notice actually that uh, we have, you know, many applications for uh, maybe five organ models, uh, and those five organ models right now actually use the same physical uh, chip, the same plastic of the chip. And that's in part, in very large part, intentional because that allows us to benefit from economies of scale uh, because the one, uh, you know, volume manufacturing, plastics manufacturing can, can serve as 
service our uh, entire current uh, uh, product line. And uh, what we've done over the years is to uh, connect with professional uh, medical device manufacturers uh, that are able to produce the kind of skills that, uh, uh, that, that we need. And of course, with time, like any other technology, we'll continue to innovate and continue to introduce generations of our products to, uh, to, to drive it, you know, continuously forward. Let's take the reverse question. What are the biggest remaining opportunities for Emulate? Uh, you know, there, there's uh, not a shortage of opportunities. Uh, <laughs> every time we, we talk to a, uh, pharma scientist or an academic researcher, we come back with an ever-growing list of, you know, could you also do this and could you also do that? The answer most often is yes, uh, we can. Uh, the challenge is, is uh, prioritization, right? We can't do everything, certainly not everything all at once. Um, so what we have to do is then to take all this information back and then strategically choose what it is we're going to do now, what it is we're going to do later. And so on. That that's honestly the challenge. There's so much. I mean, there's you know additional applications, additional organ types, additional uses, and and so on. It, it requires a lot of discipline for us to to pick what to do. Uh, you know, being a smaller company, focus is also the biggest challenge. Understood. Yeah. Um, as we move into kind of the the last few questions, I wanted to ask you more some kind of personal questions. Um, as a both a scientist and entrepreneur. What are the first kind of few steps for for you, you personally, just regardless of what it is, when you're challenged with a difficult problem? You know, one of the things I learned about myself is that I work really well with uh, with people as a sounding board. So if I'm really stumped with something, what I tend to do is to turn to a few trusted individuals that I know we we sort of think in a compatible manner and uh, and and talk things out. You know, uh, often the talking things out will illuminate some some direction that I didn't think of or or whatnot. Then usually it goes back to to sort of solitary thinking. Uh, one one of my other techniques uh, is I I like to just open a blank uh, PowerPoint slide and and start writing things as though I'm about to present it to somebody else. Something about thinking of a of that third party audience really works for me in terms of uh, clarifying my thoughts. Interesting. Uh, I'll have to try that. Kind of a similar. Uh... And what what is your favorite piece of either advice or a book to recommend uh, to people in in the area of uh, uh, science or entrepreneurship? So uh, you know I really enjoy working with uh, with entrepreneurs. And one of the things I find is that the people who start companies very often um, because it comes out of uh, you know at least the science that uh, or the companies that I enjoy working with are very rooted in research and academia and and so on. Uh, very often. Uh, the entrepreneurs uh, know the science really well, but actually don't have a lot of experience in the business world. And uh, what happens, because I was there myself, um, what happens is that we all end up making the same mistakes that everybody else does. Mm-hmm. And so my advice is uh, to, to, to talk to as many people to create a, a robust network, uh, but be really careful to, to listen. You know, that's, uh, I think, is, is the biggest, in my mind, tell whether somebody is going to be a successful entrepreneur or not. Um, you know, the ones who kind of have a sense that they already know it all, that's usually not a good sign. Uh, the ones that have the humility to say, look, I'm a good scientist. I know that much. But, uh, uh, hey, you know, I really need to, to keep my ears open in terms of business and, and entrepreneurship. Uh, I think those those people do do best. Absolutely. That sounds like a wonderful place to, to end it. Um, Danny, Dr. Levner, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Tomorrow's Go podcast. I mean, it's a fascinating technology. I wish you all the best of luck. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.